Hello, welcome to this episode of Great Conversations. This is the seventh conversation in our series. My name is Angie Cooksey. I'm Senior Lecturer in Humanities at Indiana University East, and I'm your host for this conversation. It is my privilege to welcome into the Great Conversation studios with us today, Dr. Patricia Hutchings from the National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment. Pat, welcome to Great Conversations, and thank you again for agreeing to oh, talk with us today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Pat, everyone who is in our viewing audience today may not know everything there is to know about <laughs> Niloa. Would you mind unpacking a bit that phenomenal organization, talking a little bit about what it does and what you as senior scholar at Niloa do? I would love to do that. And I'll start by saying that if you Google Niloa, N-I-L-O-A, you might get a Hawaiian t-shirt company. That's not us. Uh, we are, as you said, the National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment. And as that kind of suggests, um, our mission is around the assessment of student learning outcomes. And our, our goal is really to, to discover and to promote approaches to assessment that are not just about reporting and compliance, but really stand a chance, and this is not easy, of actually improving the learning experience for students. So toward that end, we do things like campus case studies, opinion pieces, occasional papers, gosh, we must have about 40 of them now uh, over about 10 years on all sorts of issues about assessment. Um, I mentioned case studies. We do um, reviews of websites. Um, the most recent sort of new initiative or sub-project is on assignment design and using assignments as a source of evidence about student learning for purposes of improvement. I've been very involved in that one, so I'm very excited about it. So, uh, as I say, we've been around for about 10 years. Um, we are not affiliated with the government in any way. We're co-located, as we like to say, at uh, the University of Illinois and uh, Indiana University Bloomington. And beyond that, we're a distributed operation. I live north of Spokane. Some of my colleagues are in the Boulder area. So we're, we're kind of here and there and uh, come together. Um, for instance, we are actually together this the, today and over the next couple days at a conference on assessment, the Assessment Institute here in Indianapolis where you and I are talking. And the so. resources and all of this research, uh, the evidentiary materials are available to everyone and anyone working in higher education or just those faculty members or others who have interests in designing robust learning outcomes and learning more about how to operationalize those. That is absolutely right. We are completely an open access organization, so all of our materials, all of our research 
is out there for anyone who wants to, to, to go after it. We have a very extensive website. In fact, I'd have to say it's now so extensive that it's hard to navigate. Understood. So we yes. are doing some redesign to make things easier to find. Like so many other wonderful dynamic knowledge repositories, right? right? Today right. it's not hard to grow to right. wonderfully gargantuan sizes, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. it takes some special gifts to uh, make that more navigatable. It it does. But we are very pleased to have all those things out there for anybody who wants to borrow them, use them, adapt them. That's really, that's really our mission. Um, and that is possible because we've had a number of funders over the years. And I should probably mention the Lumina Foundation, so right here in Indianapolis. And Niloa is not your first gig, so to speak, in educational research. You spent time uh, also at the Carnegie Foundation. Talk just a moment about that, your work there. Yeah, I was a senior scholar and then the vice president at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of teaching. As lots of people will know, that is now on the West Coast. It used to be in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, I moved there when Lee Shulman became president in 1997. Gosh, that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> it feels like yesterday, Pat. <laughs> some days it feels like yesterday, and some days it feels yes. like a about 20 years ago, which I guess it was. So in any event, I was there for about a dozen years and I worked especially on the scholarship of teaching and learning, which is, um, we can maybe come back to this, but really um, a, a movement, a set of practices that incorporate a, a lot of my beliefs and values about teaching and learning. You know, and I remember 35, 40 years ago, I understand all that I'm giving away and putting that out on the table. <laughs> I could do that too. <laughs> but I remember 40 years ago, Pat, when this discipline, this field of research called the scholarship of teaching and learning really was in a fetal germinating stage. Yes. And it has been exactly exhilarating to watch this field grow, really blossom to support all of the good work we want to do with our students on our campuses. Well, I appreciate and resonate with your enthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> I've got a lot of that for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning as well. And I think you're quite right that, you know, in its early years, uh, starting around 1990 with a Boyer report called Scholarship Reconsidered, um, the, the notion and the language of the scholarship of teaching and learning was out there. It provoked um, both some alarm and some confusion, um, but also a lot of excitement. And that, that again, that, that movement has really grown. Um, I'm here, as I mentioned, this week for an assessment institute here in Indianapolis. Um, a week ago, I was in Calgary um, Alberta at the International Society for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning Conference, which brought together 700 people from around the world. So it is, it is a very well-established um, set of practices at this point. And your role as a real pioneer in this field, but also as a master practitioner and researcher, is what prompts our invitation to you today <laughs> to, to enter into a great conversation with us about the state of higher education, some of the greatest challenges which lie before us, and 
maybe most importantly, how teaching specifically, the classroom in particular, yeah. might have gifts, attributes, and variables within it that can be especially mobilized to rise up and meet yeah. these challenges. So if we may, I'm going to invite you into that first most profound question, if you will. Pat, what would you say are one or two of the most compelling challenges facing higher education today? Yeah, I'm, I am going to give you two, and one of them is, I guess you might say, sort of the, the meta problem in which many other things are embedded. And this is a problem, uh, you, all you have to do is walk through the halls of the Assessment Institute, which I'm attending to hear this. And that is, um, a lot of different ways to put this, but an erosion of trust around higher education. So this notion, and I know some of your other guests have, have spoken to this, um, the notion that higher education is an essential ingredient for a democratic society. We believe that, but it is not a given, I think, out there in society. Um, the notion, relatedly, that higher education is not just a private good for the individual student, but a social investment that we need to build the kind of society we want. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons for this erosion. Um, concerns about costs, return of investment, maybe the current political climate, we won't go there. Um, but I think one of the, the other causes is that higher education is still figuring out how to represent the outcomes of its work in terms of student learning. And this is, I mean, a, a core theme of the event that I keep referring to. Um, it's, it's all about figuring out ways to represent what our students know and can do as a consequence of their undergraduate, well, higher education experience more broadly. Um, we've made real progress on that since the mid-80s or so, um, but it's still a challenge, and it's particularly a challenge to do it in a way that speaks to people outside higher education who may have other priorities, so I'll put it that way. I think that's so. a compelling point. And uh, as I was preparing for our conversation today, and really all the conversations, it, it, it just prompts me to reflect on my own undergraduate experience so many decades ago when conversations like this one really were not even taking place. Yeah. There was some sort of mysterious serendipity that befell a student once he or she entered the hallowed halls of higher education. There was some magic dust sprinkled everywhere by osmosis, mitosis, hopefully not too much halitosis, <laughs> education happened, right, right? Right, right? It's like we inserted the matriculate at the beginning of the process, and after four, five, six, hopefully not many more years than that, out dumped this incredible being that was somehow metamorphosized and transformed from that first-year student who entered yeah. those hallowed halls. Yeah. And Pat, would you agree that until the scholarship of teaching and, and other sorts of areas of inquiry emerged in higher ed, we weren't quite sure what the parts of that magic were. That may still be something that's confounding us today. What 
is that mysterious happening that occurs to students that causes the transformation? Yes, and I think asking that question sort of in a, in a large way, but also thinking about what happens or what works for this student in this setting, in this course, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's very context dependent. And that really brings me to the, the other big challenge, which is related to that first one about our efforts to really document and demonstrate our contributions to student learning. Um, I've worked with faculty from around the country, every kind of campus for, gosh, more years than I think I'd like to count. And uh, one of the things that has struck me in that, it's been a wonderful privilege, um, is that many faculty have a sense that what used to work, or at least what we thought used to work, doesn't work so well now. And what you find as a consequence is, well, you find some frustration, you find some maybe some cynicism, sometimes you find student bashing, um, but on the upside, what you find is a sense that we really need to try some new things. We need to innovate, we need to look at the evidence, you were pointing at that, um, about what works, and we need to, we need to be doing new things. Um, and I think that's true in the classroom, we can kind of come back to what some of those are, um, but also in terms of the campus culture. Yeah. So I'm very interested in both of those and the relationship between them. What's, what, what do teachers do in their classrooms now and how can, how can we seize on the innovations that we're now seeing and how can those changes um, be supported by a campus environment that really values teaching and learning, a culture of teaching and learning, and uh, maybe, as many of us call it. And maybe that becomes infectious to the larger community, right? Yes. If we become devoted and better to articulate the cause of this devotion. Yeah, yeah. And Pat, what about even becoming more skillful at explicating and articulating the connections between those good things happening in the classroom and effective professionals out there yes. moving into yes. those leadership positions yes. in our communities yes. and in the world. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think uh, one of the things we've seen is some concern that higher education might turn too narrowly in the direction of preparation for jobs, vocations, professions, and so forth. Um, but, but, you know, I think it's very easy to be dismissive of that. Mo many students, maybe most students today, who are not traditional, leaving aside what that means, um, need to be thinking about how they're going to earn their living, um, how they're going to live their lives. So we need, as uh, the Association of American Colleges and Universities has, has said, a practical liberal education. Um, and. Uh, you know, creating occasions where faculty can really think about what that looks like, what it means in terms of the outcomes thereafter for students. That's, that's powerful stuff, and yes. we want to we really cultivate that conversation. I so. love the connections that you've made between the words practical and liberal arts, because too many times we see those as polemics. Yeah. And again, it might be a microcosmic observation about how we used to see the university mm -hmm. as a place that was not completely open access, uh, that was for, let's say, the more privileged, whereas today, when we have made 
quite a bit of progress in opening up our institutions. Might you agree it's that change in demographics, the shift in our goals as the academy that now also calls us to action yeah. to, to perhaps reimagine what we're doing in the classroom. Yeah. Which brings me to my second question for you, and that is, having visioned these challenges, mm -hmm. how might the classroom in particular, teaching in, in, in the specificity of our interactions with students, Pat, how might we as teachers really begin to craft some solutions or yeah, craft yeah. some approaches yeah, to these yeah. challenges? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, you know, the, the, just to go back to the big challenge that I'm trying to point to here, I think you're articulating it as well, is it's, it's this. We are in a period of really robust innovation around teaching and learning. How can we take advantage of that? and push it forward. That's the challenge, to not miss this opportunity. So what does that opportunity look like? Um, thinking first about the classroom and then maybe um, about the surrounding culture as well. Um, and I think you've put your finger on one of the most powerful ingredients that we see in just about every classroom everywhere now. Um, and that is that we have different students. Students who are, as I like to say, more diverse in all kinds of ways that matter for teaching and learning. Diversity often you know, translates as race and ethnicity. Those are obviously very important. Um, but there are other kinds yes. of diversity in terms of preparation, in terms of family yes. background, in terms of goals, age, working, and so forth. So suddenly, faculty come into the classroom and they mm -hmm. see a group of students, well, maybe I'm speaking as an older person here, who don't look like the students they went to college with. Um, that, uh, again, is a challenge. But it's also, I think, um, uh, an, an impetus, uh, a catalyst for rethinking what learning, what teaching and learning can and needs to look like to meet the needs of that very diverse student body. And I think that's where a lot of innovation starts, again, with this notion that, hmm, what I used to do doesn't seem to be working for these students, each of which is a little different, and figuring out ways to, to, to personalize and tailor education to meet the needs of different students. That's a, that's a big motivator or a big, big push toward innovation. So that's one of the things that's, I think, going on sort of at the classroom level. Um, I'm also struck by the power of new technologies to stimulate interesting innovations. And just about all of these have kind of an upside and a, and a difficult side. Um, again, maybe speaking as a, a, a mature professional, <laughs> um, uh, some of the new technologies I just find mind-boggling. I don't know what to do with them. But our students often have, are, are very tied to those kinds mm. of things, um, and lots of classrooms are using technologies that didn't exist 10 years ago, two years ago. Um, so technology, again, can be frustrating, but it is opening up new doors, new ways of doing things with this more diverse group of students. So it's another sort of catalyst for innovation. Um, and then we come to, you know, so how does teaching itself look different for these different students with these new technologies? And, uh, you know, it's a little dangerous to generalize here, but 
uh, just in terms of sort of a, a way to characterize a big shift, I think we're, we're the general sense is that we need to move to more engaged, active forms of learning, um, which are less sort of delivery of content and more an opportunity for students to actually engage in the intellectual practices of the various areas they're studying. Um, it treats them as scholars, if you will, and often around real problems in real communities, thinking about things like undergraduate research, problem-based learning, um, integrative learning. So there are a whole bunch of new or newly uh, newly discovered pedagogies that are out there. And uh, sometimes those can be disappointing because they don't work the way you want or students resist them. So again, the challenge there is to provide continuing support for people who are trying those things and to bring them together so they can learn from one another. I love hearing you say that because if you spoke with anyone on my campus who would be walking down the hall when I might be visiting with my students, they would tell you I am constantly referring to them as scholars mm. and, and really working to convince them that they are scholars. I'm not sure they see themselves in that way. Right. So I'm gratified to hear that not only is that probably not a misplaced mantra that I'm continuing with them, but it might be becoming a, a hip, a high impact practice yes. all unto itself yes. to, to encourage our students to revision themselves as scholars. But Pat, you also made the point Scholars who are applying mm -hmm. their knowledge, mm -hmm. scholars mm -hmm. who are taking those toolkits off the shelf, if mm -hmm. you will, mm -hmm. and applying them mm -hmm. to real-world problems. Right. Do we, Pat, do, you, do we have the resources right now? Are we leveraging the resources we have to really supporting teaching and teachers to be able to deliver in this high-impact manner in the classroom? Or could we be doing more? Well, we could always be doing more. Um, but I think, you know, you've, you've put your finger on something that, that is, I think, another sort of area of important innovation. And it has to do with the way students think about themselves and the kind of opportunities they're given to, yes, solve problems, for their communities and for themselves as learners. And one of the things I'm very heartened by is, um, how shall I say this, a, a, a lot of different models for um, making students active partners in the process of, of, of teaching and learning. Of course, we want them to be learning. Um, but I, I just this morning, I opened up my email and there was, a, you know, the table of contents from a journal, the International Journal for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, and there were maybe 15 articles there online, all open access, and several of them were about um, involving students as partners in learning. For instance, with a faculty member to redesign a course, or as participants in a focus group or a series of focus groups to sort of re-examine a first-year seminar or course. And these were, one of these was from the U.S., the other was from Sweden. So it's, it's very interesting how this is, has kind of kicked in. That's so exciting. Yeah, it, it, it is. is a genuine reimagination. And a, a kind of reimagination of student signature work. Yes. What if yes. more of that yes. really poured itself into the 
teaching rather than just the yeah. consequence or the artifact of the learning. Yeah, yeah. There was a great line in uh, a, a course portfolio um, that I, I read oh, a couple months ago, I guess now, from a faculty member, I believe at Kansas, University of Kansas. And he talked about looking at a, a course that he was really trying to work on and improve and realizing that he needed to move from assuming to teaching. He needed not just to assume that his students were learning the things that he cared about, but to actually teach them and to be more explicit about what he was after, more intentional about providing practice and scaffolding that would lead them in yes. those directions, and as, as I was sort of trying to suggest, um, creating opportunities for students to think about themselves as learners, as scholars, to be metacognitive, if yes. you will and to really, yeah, be a partner in that process. It encourages their presence in the moment, right? There's a lot yes. of discussion out there about mindfulness and, and yes, yes, being yes. in the moment, in the midst of a lot of noise and distractions. And I'm just I've been more and more convinced that just getting students enthralled in the moment begins to help them participate in the passion. Well, Pat, I'm going to ask is if these haven't been difficult enough questions, <laughs> an even more difficult question of you. But I think you're up to this big challenge. If I were to encourage you today to pull your crystal ball out, mm. to maybe just gaze atop and describe for us what you might see as, in our future, those compelling challenges, what might you see? Is it a continuation of those challenges that you've already placed before us, or do you see something new when you look in the next 50 years in higher ed? I'm sure there will be new things, and I'm not sure I have a crystal ball, <laughs> but I know that this is you know, a, a lively time for teaching and learning, and people are reinventing things and studying things, inquiring into their effects, thinking about students in new ways. So I'm very hopeful about what's going on in terms of sort of, you know, new pedagogies and new ways of, of thinking about teaching and learning. But I see as well a, a lot of promise in thinking about the environment in which that work goes forward because we're all affected by, by our context, it's supportive or not. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things I spend a lot of my time doing is trying to imagine and articulate what it would look like for a campus to be a real culture, a real supportive culture around teaching and learning. And a, a number of things kind of occur to me there. Um, and one of them goes back to my work with, uh, with NILOA. Um, and that is that a campus, like I'm imagining and hoping for, and I think we're seeing this, um, would have um, widely shared and understood student learning outcomes in view. Now, we actually know that maybe 85% of campuses, or at least provosts, report that their campus has established learning outcomes that are expected of all students. Sometimes that's just an inert list sitting over here. What we're after is something that's really embedded in the culture that people have really talked through, not that they agree on every particular, 
but there is a shared vision of what it means to be a graduate of this program, this institution. Um, and, and, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, since that's the one we're trying to imagine here, <laughs> yes. um, those outcomes would be understood, of course, by the faculty, yes. by the student affairs staff, by the administration, by the students, very importantly, and also understood by and, and, and embraced by people out in the community, the, what, whether that's the local community or a broader community there would be a sense that that perspective had been incorporated and heard and articulated as well. So commonly understood and embraced outcomes would be, without that, it's hard for me to see how we're going to continue to make real progress. Um, we were talking about the scholarship of teaching and learning and about assessment. And this next sort of vision, I guess, or, or element that I would put forward has, has everything to do with that. And that is that in a culture of teaching and learning on a campus that has such a culture, educators, not just faculty, but everyone who has an educational role, would think of teaching and learning courses, programs, as sites for inquiry. That might sound a little academic. And it is. Um, but it's inviting inviting educators to say, you know, here there's something going on in this class and I'm not quite sure what it is. I need to understand it more clearly. Or I'm trying to teach toward um, community-engaged learning in this program. And the, this part seems to be working, but over here I'm not so sure. There, I need to ask some questions. I need to gather some evidence. That's what the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning is promoting, and it's really where assessment gets its best start. Not with the idea that, oh, we need to turn in a report to the state, an accreditor, or whatever, but that as scholars, we can bring our habits and our values and our, our dispositions to question to the work that we do with students. So this notion of, of asking questions, inquiring into students' movement toward those commonly agreed upon outcomes, that, that to my money is a really transformative practice that is catching on but needs, as always, an, a, a push, some support. So yeah. And maybe that last piece is, and don't cringe when I use this phrase, closing the loop so maybe yes, in yes, the future yes, you know, yes. looking in that crystal ball we find some invigorating robust passion-driven ways to respond to the assessment educationals that we walk away with when we learn how to do it better we operationalize that well you've just made the $64,000 point which is you can inquire till the till the cows come home or whatever, <laughs> yes. you're blue in the face, whatever yes. the metaphor you like. Um, but unless we act on that, I mean, I'm talking about action research, yes. if you will, yes. not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, though we're all in favor of that <laughs> at some level, um, but gathering evidence, getting smarter about what works for our students, yes. and then using that to you know, tinker with an assignment, redesign a course, rethink a curriculum. Um, those are the kinds of things, and I mean, that, uh, that's what we're pushing for, and it turns out that that's actually the hardest part. So we're good at asking questions. 
we're not as good at change. And that, you know, I guess takes me to, to one more feature of a culture of teaching and learning, and that is that good teaching and inquiry and change, innovation around teaching and learning would be recognized as important scholarly work and rewarded um, in ways that, you know, have, have parity with the kinds of rewards and recognition and support that go to other forms of scholarly work. That's a big ask. It's a long-term um, agenda, but we are making progress. Um, many campuses have created new language in promotion and tenure documents, um, making a place for the scholarship of teaching and learning, or pointing to the importance of assessment as a dimension of probably of teaching. It can go in different boxes. Um, and so I think we're starting to see that. And faculty are also getting smarter um, at and, and better at documenting what they do. Because you can't have rewards if you can't evaluate. So things like course portfolios, um, the scholarship of teaching and learning, sometimes in the form of published journal articles. Once those are out there, then we're in a position to, to really begin to shift uh, the reward structure. And it, as I say, that is, it's happening, but it's slow going. So, you know, Angie, thinking about all the things we've talked about, um, one of the things I come back to and that I'm very grateful for is that I've had the opportunity, I mentioned this before, to work with faculty from all different disciplines, all different institutional types, mainly from the United States, but internationally as well. And the thing that has struck me in that, I know it's not a random sample of the world, but I think it's a telling one, is how, how thoughtful, how caring, how creative and committed faculty are. And, you know, if I were to have put forward sort of one plea for the future, it would be trust faculty, create the conditions in which they can really build on the good things that have been going on, and we'll see what happens. But I have, I have high hopes. I do too. Pat Hutchings, I want to thank you again for joining us in this great conversation today. The work of Niloa and your personal work is really laying that landscape against which that change in the world will happen. Thank you for sharing your, your knowledge and your expertise with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Angie.